This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 105. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 105 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Back again here at the end of the year as we fast approach the holidays and the new year of 2017. So it's been good. It's been a good year. I got another great guest for you. Well, I'm talking about Michael Ashby. And Michael is what I would call part of the, definitely part of the new generation of recording engineers coming up. Uh, he's a graduate of SAE and although quite young and having only been at it for about 10 years, Michael is really, well, I don't know how else to say it. He's like working his ass off. He's like working six, seven days a week, uh, out of his own studio in uh, New York. And he's working mostly with uh, hip hop and R&B clients. And I got to be honest with you, being like, you know, a big fan of, you know, rock music for the most part and having a very limited knowledge of urban music. I don't know who a lot of these people are. So <laughs> just be clear about that. But some of them, uh, some of them, of course, I've heard of, of course, Latoya Jackson. Yes. Uh, Melissa B, Fetty Wap, Cardi B, Vibes Cartel, B Howard, Uncle Murda, uh, Easy Money, Anthony Z, and Josh X. Um, many of those, I don't know who they are, but uh, I've listened to the stuff that Michael has worked on with them, and I've watched a, a bunch of videos of some of these artists. And the guy is definitely kicking ass. He's doing some great work. Anyhow, he is definitely of the next generation of audio engineer. Uh, he started out as a drummer, and he is very, very inspired by... Uh, uh, engineers like uh, Jason Joshua and Craig Bauer, and he really is looking to to those folks to as as his inspiration. And he's got a great great studio, the Crematorium. You can check him out at ashbymix.com. And so, not only is he running this studio, he's like I said, six days a week, generally sometimes seven. This website that he's that he's built for himself for uh, not only his production work, but also his uh, studio looks great. He's on social media like crazy, definitely of a different generation entirely. And his work ethic really, I find inspiring. Uh, so I'm really happy to have Michael on. Coming up, yeah, Michael Ashby. So let's see what else is going on. Um, our friends over at Gear Sluts are doing a giveaway. They're doing an Impressor 500 giveaway sponsored by uh, Alicia, the people that make that, of course. Looks like there are three prizes up for grabs. And to be in with a chance of winning, uh, all you have to do is answer one simple question. And so you want to go over to uh, gearsluts.com, uh, look under the competitions for that. Go over there and win something if you can. And of course, as we get to the end of the year, we want to make sure and uh, start to gather up all of our receipts for that tax time. I know I always bring up taxes and it's a, such a bummer, I know. But, you know, a couple thoughts for you. If you're, um, you know, if you're tired of doing the whole throwing the receipt in the shoebox and hoping that, you know, you can make sense of it uh, or you're somebody who's doing your taxes can make sense of it. Uh, a couple of tools that are out there that you might want to check out for uh, digital capture of receipts. You could still throw those receipts in the, in the box if you want, but if you want to have quick access to them and have a very simple way to just email uh, the accountant or bookkeeper, whoever's doing your taxes, or just have quick access if you're doing them, there's a couple things like Evernote, uh, Google Keep, uh, there's this other one here. I'm looking on my phone on Android MD scan, uh, mobile doc scanner. That's what it is, right? Uh, all these things allow you to obviously take a snapshot, which of course you could do with the camera. But, uh, the good thing about Evernote I'll say is Evernote actually can let you take a picture of the receipt and then, it, then it actually goes through and it reads the content of the receipt. And the good thing about that is is you can then do a search for, you know, that particular item. You know, let's say you're looking for something from some music store or, you know, you're looking for microphone or some kind of receipt. That's one way to do it. And then, of course, you know, many of us are buying stuff online, so we're getting emailed receipts. 
So that, that kind of, you know, solves that. That takes care of a certain percentage of the receipts, depending on where you buy. But, you know, there's all these things like, you know, mileage. You want to track your mileage and, uh, you know, get your receipts for gas and all that stuff. I'm always looking for ways to just kind of minimize the clutter of everything so that when I get to uh, that time of the year where I've got to interact with, uh, we, have, we hire an accountant to do uh, taxes for my wife and myself, you know, it's just easier just to send uh, a link uh, to a pack of, you know, PDFs that the accountant can look over and, and you know, make a judgment call on whatever we're deciding to write off. So that's definitely one way you can organize your receipts and, you know, have a, a better grip on it rather than just shoving it all into a, uh, a cardboard box or shoebox. Because some of those receipts, you know, are, are uh, thermal based and they fade and then you don't even know what it was. So whenever I get a receipt from something, I always do my best to try to take a, a snapshot into one of those programs that I named and uh, capture it right then and there and then have that receipt, you know, sitting around somewhere, if at all. So there it is, more tax stuff. We'll be past that at some point here. <laughs> we can not worry about that for another year. So that's it. Uh, well, let's get down to it here. Let's talk to our friend Michael Ashby here and get some insights into the mind of a new generation uh, of up-and-coming engineer here. All right, Michael Ashby here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. I want to start with today rather than, you know, starting at the beginning. Where, where are you at? Right now, I'm at a point where I'm basically making a name for myself in New York, especially out of the many engineers that are here doing this freelance type of thing as a recording or mixing engineer. I'm basically now finally working with artists that are like that have a name, but um, it's going to take obviously a lot more work than just that to uh, really like climb my way up into this industry. So, but at this point right now, it's like I'm just now touching that sweet spot where I have like a few very um, well-known clients um, in the urban music industry um, so far. So that I can say is what I'm doing right now. So I'm just working Monday through Saturday mainly on many different local clients as well as um, clients that are well-known. So, cause I have like clients that was already coming to me five, six, seven years ago when I had just started that still come nowadays. And then as well as the new artists that I have nowadays that come because of the word of mouth and all that. So that's basically what I'm doing, juggling a bunch of, you know, random, <laughs> but spontaneous and busy uh, in and out sessions. Yeah. And you run a studio called The Crematorium, right? Yeah. I actually got that name... It, the inspiration came from two different places. Um, the Terrarium, if you look look it up, is a studio in Minneapolis. Okay, yeah. It's a really big facility, really clean, really like well put together. It was kind of a, a inspiration of mine, and I like the way the way that the the name sounded. Auditorium, the Terrarium. It kind of felt like um, sort of like a big place. Uh, um, you know, a place of some substance, something, you know, weighty to me. I don't know. It's just the, the vibe I got from it at the time, three years ago when I was looking for a name for this studio. So, but then I also was inspired by Alicia Keys, the Oven Studios. I kind of came across a few other studios recently, randomly, that around that time that had names based around heat. So I was just like, wait a minute, I actually like this whole studio name with like a heat thing to it at the same time for some reason i was looking through on wikipedia or i don't know i googled it and was looking for words that kind of like was similar to the oven or and then i saw names like um the inferno but i was like no that sounds like an mtv show no <laughs> so and then i came across this name called the crematorium i was like i, I know that obviously means where they cremate bodies but it was basically um the way the, the the name looks, I was like, I feel like I could commercialize it a little bit, put more of a accent on the beginning of it. So I changed the C to a K. I figured all I was also inspired by this. I don't know how I came across this, but it was this guy's personal 
um, really well built home studio in London um, called um, called um, Red Maple Studios, I believe. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever find it again because I, I was looking for it again when I was trying to explain to somebody how I came up with the color scheme for my studio and. Um, it, I don't know. I just saw it this one time on YouTube. It was Red Maple Studio, and his logo was like red, and it was just like really cool. It was just a very, you know, warm vibe, but yeah, it was very bold. I kind of took that as well, and I put that with the crematorium, and then that's how I came up with my color scheme. And then when people be like, okay, so what's the meaning of your studio? I'd, I'd be like, this is where we cremate the competition or where hits are made at its hottest, considering this heat is theoretically hotter than the oven speaking. So <laughs> we kind of do that. <laughs> so let's talk so. about that just a little bit. Like the the vibe and the theme, it seems like you've put a lot of thought in, into that. Yeah, because I'm the kind of person when... Um, you do something, it has to be 100%. So I felt like, all right, not only am I an engineer coming up in this industry, but I was like, if I'm going to be making this a business and, you know, business-wise, how do I want it to look and how do I want it to resonate with people? I kind of want it to be consistent and bold. So kind of like if you're in Burger King, you know you're in Burger King because the color scheme is the same as their logo looks outside and the same thing you see in their commercials as well. Everything's consistent. So that's kind of like how I thought about it when I, um, before I decided to come up with the name that I felt confident about for the, for the studio. So lots of so. thought went into the, to the branding of it. Yeah, pretty much. And I'm not even, I don't even have any experience in branding, but I just try to make sure I cover my P's and Q's. Well, one thing that's really cool, something that I'm drawn to about your website, not only does it look great, by the way, thanks, but there's an aspect of it that puzzles me. And, and that is, I, I noticed it first on your, um, on the Michael Ashby aspect of, to, of it. So, so for listeners, mm -hmm. if they go to ashbymix.com, they're going to get a choice of going to the crematorium or going mm -hmm. to the Michael Ashby side of things. Yeah. And both sides present this opportunity to self book. Yeah. And that blew my mind uh -huh. because I've, cool. I've never seen that. And it, it raised a lot of questions. I thought, wow, that's, that's great. People can just book themselves right in. But at the same time, it raised the questions of how do you, how do you vet people? How do you find out like, I mean, do you just show up and go, okay, let's see what person shows up today or do you have a connection? How do you keep the crazy people out? That's what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> well, um, well, it, it the thing is, it started way back when um, it was people that I knew in high school. And then those friends told other friends from other high schools. And then those friends told other people from other boroughs in New York. So it wasn't only just people within my high school district, but it was people in Queens and Brooklyn and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was always someone that known someone that knows someone. So it's kind of like I kind of trusted them, mm -hmm. um, although it was still new people coming in. But it was like, oh, I know him. So and it's like, OK, hi. So and I've always built a working relationship with every one of them. So um, now with as it started to get really busy, I couldn't do the, oh, um, they'll call me and then it's like, can I get a session tonight type of thing? No, because I would have a project that needs to get mixed for someone that actually has to hand it in to the label tomorrow. So it's like I couldn't do random sporadic things like that, last minute things. So I had to develop a system where um, people can. And oh, also, I was also starting to forget who had a session based on a a simple, a simple like phone call conversation. I was starting to forget small things like, um, oh yeah, I told you you can come in tomorrow at a specific time. And then, I don't know, like a few days later, or like let's say it's a week later, right? A few days later, someone else would call and ask for the same day the next week. And then I would forget that I told the person two days ago that 
you know, like you can come in. And then there would be like a double booking situation issue, which is totally my fault. I take responsibility for But that was before I developed the booking online system. And I felt like booking things online is actually going to really help organize everything. And I started it about three, four years ago now. And actually, yeah, four to five years ago now I started that. So, and ever since I've always changed providers, changed providers. Now I'm, you know, with the, the Square people because I already kind of have an account with them, knowing that I sometimes charge, sometimes clients pay with their cards and stuff. So it's kind of like a one system thing and it works out very well. Interesting. Okay, so this is this is Square is in the credit card people, squareup.com. Yeah, so... Okay. I didn't realize they even did that kind of a thing. Yeah, so the thing that really ties it together is, let's say um, you have the same client that comes back the following week and decides to use his card. It already memorizes that person's email by the card, credit card information. Let's say that that person's um, identity is now in your system it knows when that person booked. That person doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be like, a, a new entry every time, you know? Mm. So it kind of like, it already knows, all right, this is the same person that scheduled a session, same person that usually uses a card or, you know, vice versa. And it keeps like a log on who who shows up to your sessions, who cancels last minute, all of that stuff. So it kind of keeps things, you know, together for me. Because I'm like, I started this by myself and I'm kind of still running it by, by, by myself except for the fact that I kind of have the help of my mom just looking at um, the, the bookings online now because oftentimes I'll be in a session when people are booking sessions and I can't always, you know, damage control things and shift people's appointments around if I need to, if things need to be done like that. So, But the question was, I want to get back to the point you had asked me. Originally I was asking, how do you keep the crazy people out? Yeah, now because of that, now that I do have, I've been doing the scheduling thing online for about four to five years, 80% of the people that has been scheduling online are people that are word of mouth. The other percentage of people, I'm able to confirm who they are by, um, they'll send me an email. Oftentimes they'll send me an email because they've heard of me on Facebook, Instagram or something and send me an email through the main website. And then I'm able to reply to them because they'll oftentimes ask, how do I get to get started? How do I get, you know, um, something mixed by you? Or how do I start recording with you? And this answer is the same all the time. Schedule a mixing session or schedule a recording session online. And then that's how I know this is some money that's, you know, because they've already sent me a sample of what they were working on or a reference or something. Mm. And I'm able to be like, all right, this is somebody that's actually trying to work on something, you know. This is somebody legit. Yeah. Okay. And also, it would also, half the time, that would that new person would be someone that says, oh, I heard of you from someone else. But it wouldn't be like a local person. It would be like somebody in Miami or something, you know. But... He'll still say, oh, I've heard of you from my friend that writes music for me because he actually works with you in New York. But that person is flying from coast to coast writing for people or producing, you know, like I work wow. with different producers, different um, songwriters and stuff like that. And they're all doing work with me as an artist and also as, you know, producers or whatever. So do you uh, is there an instrument that you play as your primary instrument? My only instrument and primary instrument is the drums. I wish I got time to learn how to play other things, but ironically, I'm actually, I've become really, I've developed a really good ear towards um, pitch and um, melody over the years. And I was able to, I think, based off the fact that, okay, yes, I'm a drummer, and I kind of, I'm already a lot more familiar with music than other people who are not musicians would be but that's just on the rhythm aspect of it so I felt like the fact that right after I dived into recording I've had enough years of practicing I guess or training my ears towards pitch by doing a lot of pitch correction for people in high school that hardly couldn't um get there 
takes performed the way they should have done. So there were people even doing Kanye Kanye covers. Like when he first dabbled with the autotune, there were people from high school doing Kanye covers and couldn't even do the melody the same way he did. And I had to, I remember going into Melodyne and drawing in the melody exactly the way the original song was. And then that's actually where I got my other nickname, Magic Mike, from because they would leave the studio with it one way and then they'll come back to the session hearing it a different way and they'll be like, wow, you know, it's really like, you know, a 180 spin around. <laughs> that's interesting. I'm I'm a drummer as well, and I've I wonder if you, in the beginning, did you feel at a disadvantage being coming from that aspect of it that viewpoint as a drummer maybe at some small minor points i felt like i had a slight disadvantage because i used to play trumpet in elementary school in the the fourth grade and then i switched over to drums in the fifth and the sixth grade so i literally only played trumpet for one year and at that point I was actually able to identify what a C sounds like versus a V. After that, I completely forgot. But I was always aware of pitch and I was always aware of what sounds out of tune. And when I started really getting into recording um, in high school and dealing with pitch correction, I was able to, and Melodyne, I was really able to identify what's vibrato, what vibrato sounds like, what pitch, what pitch drift sounds like, and all that stuff. So by me, actually, I guess, building people's melodies for a little bit at some point in time, when I started to record people a lot quicker, actually by letting them sing through the autotune nowadays, but with, the, with specific, you know, settings engaged, I'm able to um, tell them when... I like this, the way this takes sounds based on the way autotune has, you know, swiped its pitch correction across the way they performed their voice into the tune. Mm -hmm. Just off the fact that the way it would sound to me when I'm doing pitch correction with Melodyne and just going for that thing where I need it to sound natural, but I don't want it to sound, you know, like too Barbie dolled at the same time. You know, but then again, I don't want it to sound too loose and it's natural. Like I still need it to feel controlled, but I'm like, I'm a very picky person when it, when it comes to pitch because I, I guess I was like doing a lot of melodyning for a moment, but then I found out that those results I've got, I was able to kind of get them quicker if I just discipline my clients in the booth during the recording process. If I just discipline them, I'm able to actually achieve what I what I what I, what I once was achieving after spending so much time with you know doing post production pitch correction. Yeah, I was going to say so basically getting them to sing it right the first time. Yeah. And then of course with the help of a little um, pitch correction it comes out much more like what they what they expected recording wise like what they like to listen to on the radio and stuff like that. I wanted to ask you about that. In in hip hop and R&B, it seems like the more overt use of autotune and melodyne mm -hmm. is accept, more accepted mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes, you know, obviously dating way back to like share doing it, but I mean mm -hmm. in in these styles of music, it's almost like it's a feature Whereas in like other types of music, it's generally, it can be frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like, do you have a, a feeling about that? Pop music has a lot of tuning as well, but yes. I'm working with pop artists, classical type music artists, um, artists that even do a little bit of like country referencing, all of that. So it's just... And those styles of music, traditionally, they don't really, you know, use pitch correction or, you know, things like that. And I'm even been, I've been doing acoustic music, too, with certain people. All of that type of stuff, I was able to take what I've learned from um, what I've always been doing and just help to make sure the performances and all those other genres are as perfect as they possibly can but still keep the original integrity of the way you know they usually would sound in those genres you know so and by doing that I've learned that there's a fine line between <laughs> putting a little bit too much pitch correction <laughs> and 
having just the right amount and being able to identify when that's happening varies because sometimes it's a very flexible situation because that sometimes the artist may need more pitch correction when they're doing uh, when they're hitting notes quicker. So like, for example, if someone's singing a run, um, it requires me to, I would turn the retune speed up um, in auto-tune just to make sure it's catching those things. But if someone has a really long vibrato, gentle vibrato on like, and they're just sitting on that one word, that one note for a phrase or something, I'm not going to need that fast of a um, retune speed. I'm going to slow it down so mm -hmm. that this way... Auto-tune's not jumping on the vibrato and all of that. And just, it'll allow things to relax a little bit because the slower the retune speed, the more error it will allow. So it's just knowing the right balance of that. And then just really getting the art form of that down mm -hmm. really helps to like, just make sure everything is... So as people are singing through the mic, things are being pitch corrected, which is really great because the way I have it printing is I would set the input from my converter into a mono auxiliary track in Pro Tools. And then um, that mono auxiliary track would host the auto-tune. And then from that output of the mono auxiliary track, it would go to a audio track that you normally would print vocals to. And that in real time is what it's doing is, is by the time the person's done singing, auto-tune's already processed on the waves that you're looking at and it's not actually running on the, um, you know, the CPU mm -hmm. that usually people would have it running on. So let's say I have to send a session out for um, someone else to, let's say, mix it, for example, or if someone else needs to add parts to it and they don't have auto-tune or the version of auto-tune that I have, it doesn't matter because everything that they have performance-wise is in pitch. The performance is exactly what we want because we were, as we were recording, we're basically already auditioning how that performance was done through the tune. So mm -hmm. all of that is already decided and all that. It's it's better seen in action than said because it sounds like a lot, but it's really fluid once you get it down. And I'm, I'm not going to take all the credit for this because I'm going to say over the years as I was coming up, I ran into this guy um, who is a multi-platinum producer and artist himself, and he goes by the name of B. Howard. He has been working with people like Day 26 and Chevy Dennis. He's kind of known to be like a lot of people, conspiracy theorists say that they kind of think he's like Michael Jackson's long lost son, but I don't really believe <laughs> and you would even come across countless videos on YouTube of people saying, um, you know, he's like, he, that's his secret son and Billie Jean is his mom and blah, blah, blah. And even you catch um, Akon saying things like, yeah, I really believe, you know, it. He's if it, if it acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it is, you know? So, and he really feels like that. But I feel like it's only because knowing Brandon, he has grown up in the um, in the industry because his mom was in fact managed by Joe Jackson and she's known as um, Mickey Howard. So when I met him, he's like, he's just, I like how you work, you know, I like your results and everything, but let me show you how to get the pitch correction results done faster. So whenever he would go in the booth, he would tell me, you know, all right, so put on the auto-tune, put it on the auxiliary, just set the retune speed and then see how that goes. And we'll adjust the retune speed accordingly and off we go. Like he's already used to singing with the tune. So it's just something that happens instantly once we have the settings there. Interesting way to work. Yeah, I don't take the credit for it completely because once I started working like that with him, I adopted that with everyone else. I didn't really understand at first the signal flow for that. I was just like, what? How is it only one instance of autotune is open on one auxiliary? And we got a bunch of vocal stacks and they're all in pitch. I didn't understand that they were passing through the autotune in real time. That's interesting. So does the artist hear that in real time? Yeah, they do. And it actually, some for some people, 
a kind of like it's kind of like a, a learning curve for them. Naturally, the way you hear yourself is different from the way you hear yourself in your headphones, and then it's even more different when you're hearing yourself in the headphones being pitch corrected. Meanwhile, in person. For a split second, you probably may have been a little flat. So hearing the two blend together is not a pleasant sound, but that's just for them in the booth, and that's something they work through. Now, there's two different kind of people. There's people that it doesn't bother them, and then there's people that they kind of get used to it. And before they even, to to those people, they don't even care because from the time Let's say I, because I'm on the other side of the speakers. So from the time I say, okay, we got a take that I think we can use, and I play it back to them, they're like, oh, yeah, this is good. So they'll go to the next line and they'll be like, okay, let me hear that back too. And they get reassured that despite what they're hearing in the booth, um, <laughs> it's coming out good on the other end. Yeah, they get reassured and build confidence that you're taking care of them and it's going to sound appropriate for, for the genre. Yeah, and it's all for the the um, the efficiency of just making sure everything's um, kind of just, just a, lot, a little bit more efficient. Instead of just dealing with like a bunch of, oh, let's do nine takes in the same place and then just hope that one of them are really good right. and deal with it in the post. That takes too much time in post. That, ta- that adds to mixing time. That's more expensive for the mixing process. So it's just and it's and it becomes a frustrating mess for the whoever's mixing it because he has to go through he or the vocal producer has to go through many, many takes and that's just a process of its own that's completely eliminated by the kind of workflow that I've come across when working with him. Gear Sluts is one of the sponsors of the podcast and Jules from Gear Sluts, I told him I was gonna be speaking with you and he said, Oh, uh, ask him how what his views are on entourages in the studio you know when people show up and they bring a boatload of friends with them Uh, do you deal with that and and what what are your thoughts on that yes i do um honestly for me it doesn't bother me but what really gets on my nerves is when people bring an entourage to a mixing session Mm. i don't get that because a mixing session like dave pensado said is not a performance it's just a moment where you can like zone in on things and just like it's your moment to vibe with the song and really let the music tell you what needs to be done. And it's just like when there's people around you and having random conversations and you can't help help but hear it because um, some of the things they're saying sounds interesting or is funny, but at the same time, it's just like you have a project to finish mixing and it's just like, how do they expect you to do the best you possibly can when not only are they talking but sometimes they're being pretty loud and it's just like and yes I would tell them to like be silent but it's just like sometimes that's not enough because just the just the fact that there's like 10 different people standing around you not even standing sitting around you and then just staring at the adjustments you're making expecting it to sound like a 180 from the time you turn turn the knob in like two seconds is just like oh yeah it's like weird it's because it makes me feel like they're staring at me staring at the screen making adjustments many small adjustments staring at the screen meanwhile they're like barely hearing a change yet but staring at the screen thinking um he's like doing all of this and it's like he's staring at the screen, like doing a bunch of things that honestly just sounds the same to them. But until the end of the mixing session, they really, you know, they're able to hear the difference. But it's just that vibe and that that anxiousness that they have. It rubs off and like I'm able to, that resonates on me. And it's just like, it kind of takes a toll. So I honestly don't get why they would bring um, a lot of people to a mixing session. I understand if the artist would like to come to the mixing session, that's fine with me because oftentimes it's like, okay, less people in the room, the air is a lot less thicker and it's just like, okay, I can breathe and I can do my thing while that person's doing their thing. They're probably going through their Instagram, managing their social media at the same time anyways. And then if they hear something, they can be like, oh, can you do this? You know, And it's not like 10 different people saying, 
yeah, but I think you should do that. And then they're going back and forth between each other and all that stuff. That's too much confusion. Well, do you ever have anybody in, sitting in the back going, just turn it up, man? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I honestly, I don't have much to say to, to those people, <laughs> but I do say, but I do say, just wait a minute. Um, there will, you will hear it from the top and you will hear it loud. Trust me. But there comes a time for that. So I tell them, Right now is not the time, and just hold on a second. You talked about you know disciplining your clients as far as you know training them to sing in the vocal booth, but what about uh, the etiquette of of sessions? Do you ever say, "Hey, man, you know what? Can you like leave your ten friends at home so we can get some real work done?" <laughs> I think I one time recommended somebody in a text um, I had said because he once brought unnecessary amount of people to a mixing session when he said he was on his way for this future mixing session i was just like um okay cool i'll see you soon and don't bring anybody else that needs that doesn't need to come i think i may have said that once in the text but <laughs> i haven't really I came out at nobody really said that strictly um as of yet because what i really wanted to do is i wanted to develop a um an immunity to people that people that are having their own side conversations in the session, I want to be able to, as long as they're not too loud, too loud, I want to be able to develop some sort of mental immunity to pretend they're not there and me just doing whatever it is I would usually do as if they weren't there. Mm -hmm. And then me just getting to the finish line so I can turn it up and then blast it for them while they're there. And then, you know, yeah. get through it that way. So you're taking the high road, man. I love it. Uh, I I, I would lose patience. I would just be like, uh, everybody's got to go. So I, I applaud you for your, your diplomacy. Michael Ashby here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a little break from our conversation for a bit. I want to, of course, encourage you to head on over to, uh, I've always told you about the Audio-Technica website. Uh, I think also what you should do is check out the Audio-Technica USA Facebook page. Uh, just a simple scroll through their timeline, and they are reposting, of course, all of the companies that are doing giveaways for Audio-Technica product. Uh, there is a boatload of them from a number of sources. So I encourage you to head on over there, like their page, and support our sponsors here at Working Class Audio. Give them a like and uh, have a scroll through their timeline, and when you see some contests, you might want to enter. There, There's definitely some... Uh, uh, some headphone giveaways going on, some uh, microphone giveaways going on, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, who doesn't like getting free stuff? We definitely gave away um, four sets of ATH M40Xs uh, at the 100th show uh, party. So I hope uh, those who have received them are enjoying them. And if you haven't received yours yet, you will soon be enjoying them. Uh, so that's it. So yeah, be sure and head on over to Audio Technica USA on Facebook. Like them, scroll through that timeline and hopefully win yourself some Audio-Technica product. So that's it. Let's get back into it here with Michael Ashby here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You mentioned social media. I want to ask you about how social media plays a part for your business and the importance you place on it. I feel like social media really helps to... It's like, let's say you missed a game and because you were working and let's say it's a really good game and all your friends are telling you it's a really good game, but you didn't get to experience it for yourself yet. Social media for me is like me giving you that missed the game a DVR to play it back and get your own dosage of what was happening and what has happened, you know, so that this way you can kind of experience it for yourself. And of course, once someone experiences for themselves, they either really like it or, you know, they're they're like, okay, cool, you know, seen that before or, you know, they can go somewhere else. But honestly, nine times out of 10, people really indulge into it and they, they ask for more. And I used to really go hard on Instagram and Facebook mainly, but, and actually YouTube, YouTube and Instagram, actually, I used to go a lot, really hard on. When that kind of just slowed down and people really started to hop on Snapchat, I was recommended to go on Snapchat by one of my clients. What I did is I was like, all right, fine. I guess this is that moment in time when everybody's shifting to another app. Snapchat is the kind of app where if I'm, if I'm on there and I post something, it would only last for 24 hours. 
I started out with obviously um, just probably just one subscriber, two subscribers, three, four. Only those four people would be able to witness what was posted at that time for those 24 hours and they would be gone. Everybody else doesn't really know about that stuff yet. So what I would do is I would post what was deleted, but I would download it before it gets deleted from Snapchat, post what was deleted after it gets deleted on Snapchat, on Facebook, and then the people that have already liked the studio's like page on Facebook were able to tune in and be like, oh, you know, because at this time it was just like everybody was making a Snapchat account. So why not, you know, follow? Why not add me? So I would just post things on Facebook of what happened on Snapchat and then slowly, slowly but surely, the, the subscribing count would rise. I surprised myself because I was just like, I'm the type of person that the last thing I will ever do is try to buy views and buy clicks or likes and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, it, that, which is why it took so long for me to reach over a thousand followers on Instagram. And I've had Instagram for like a really long time because I've waited for it to really organically grow. And halfway through that process, Instagram globally, I heard, or I remember, you may know of this, globally went ahead and cut everyone's followers by like half because there was a lot of bots jumping on people's you know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it cut everybody down by half. And there was some people that actually did have a lot of fake followers that got cut down by like a good like third. And it was just like actually three fourths actually. And they were really devastated. There were some certain celebrities that wanted to even sue Instagram or even <laughs> that there were certain celebrities that shut down their accounts after because they were so mad at how low their followers dropped. But I feel like I don't like I never get that personal over followers. But but here's the thing. The point was it was just that with the Snapchat thing, I'm surprised to see that at my slow pace it gradually went up to the point where it's at now where if I just kept doing what I was doing within my own little network of friends, how slowly it kind of expanded, you know, to more and more people. When they would see something they really liked, they would post it on their Facebook to share and then other strangers would see that. And then if I'm lucky, they would follow me as well. Cause obviously um, only, um, a, let's say three or four out of 10 people, 10 new people that sees, a shared post on Facebook from my Snapchat would follow. Um, it's always the lesser amount or lesser percentage of those huge number of people that just saw a video would follow because a lot of people are, I feel like they have a short attention span and they're lazy. So if your video at the end of a, a segment on YouTube says subscribe now, oftentimes, let's say if those 10 people saw it, only two people would subscribe. That's just what I've experienced mm. personally over across, you know, you, different types of platforms with social media. Do you think it helps your business at the end of the day? Um, yes, I do think it's kind of helping the business. Yeah. Now, the reason why I say kind of is because majority of my clients, I must say, are here now because of word of mouth. And that's bet between one person telling the other person, yep. which I think is a lot stronger because they trust when someone they already know is telling them, trust me, like this person's really good. Like, or I really get a good, you know, thing done here. You need to check him out or check this place out. I think they more trust in the person when someone someone human says to another human that they need to blah, 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 blah. As opposed to me just putting out an ad on Facebook saying private boutique studio open for sessions, come book a session. Hardly anybody, you know, would really click on it. But um, the people that do, I mean, they're curious, but still they're not going to just jump into it. Um, oftentimes the people that jump into it are people that has been referred, you know? Do you book um, the studio out independent of yourself? Usually the bookings automatically include me online when they schedule a session. Mm -hmm. And if they want to speak otherwise, obviously, yes, they can. They can just email me, text me, and set something up where they can bring their own engineer in. And, you know, we can work out a rate where 
you know, their engineer is just basically working for them, but in my facility and I can just be off somewhere um, <laughs> relaxing and <laughs> they still pay for a studio yeah, you're, time. I, yeah, you're, you know? I could see the gears in your brain going, hmm, that could be cool. <laughs> yeah, I know because I'm the only one running all the sessions this like whole week and it's just like, it's always nice to know that, um, you can make money without having to work specifically. So, I mean, anybody would want to be able to do that. So I felt like, all right, so if an engineer wants to come in and do their thing with their client or whatever, that's cool too, because then they'll just pay me for whatever. They got to pay for the space and the rest is between them and the client. And I can still get my, I can still get something per hour, even though I'm not technically here, you know? Mm -hmm. So, which is cool. But honestly, no one really um, requires, no one really asks for um, them to bring in any Pretty external rare. engineers. It's really rare. Yeah. yeah. There was only one time this person said it because he he's from LA. And when he came to New York, he... Um, I don't know, for whatever reason, he felt like he liked the vibe of the studio. He had the option of going to any studio in Manhattan, but he said, number one, he's able to find parking outside. And he's he feels like it's like the same level of quality and gear, but it felt a little bit more cozier to him and a little bit more residential. And they kind of like that, so... Where's your studio located? It's actually located in Long Island, New York. Uh-huh. In a house, <laughs> in a basement, yeah. But um, but obviously from the website, it kind of doesn't give people that vibe. They they don't think of it as it being in a house. Oftentimes, yeah. But yeah, that's basically where it is. So when people pull up here, they're like, "There's a studio inside the house," because <laughs> it looks like an ordinary house from the outside, and then they walk in. If you're in Nashville, it would be like, well, of course there's a studio in the house, because that's just how Nashville is. <laughs> yeah, and in New York, it's just like, usually people are used to the 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 commercial corner studios or like um, the Manhattan ones. You know, they're used to, com to commercial spaces oftentimes. You know, you obviously work a lot. Um, what's your, what's your work life balance like i mean how do you get how do you balance it so you get rest and um i mean you know the life of a of a of an engineer working a studio 6 days a week can be a little treacherous from a diet yeah. diet perspective from a oftentimes, health perspective oftentimes not to cut you off it's yeah. even 7 days a week unfortunately oh my god i i try to cut it down to 6 because yes I have to maintain the balance because sometimes it just gets out of control. Um, the past month, people have been telling me that um, they had emergencies. Last minute, they'd be like, I have an emergency tomorrow. Can I come in? And it'll be a Sunday because they'll tell me Saturday. And I'm like, but Sunday I'm off. They're like, no, I promise. It's just this one time. Da -da -da. I need to come in because such and such is, is expecting it and the label this, that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Because I'm usually a very, 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 very considerate person. So, and I'm too patient. So it's just like, I'll let people come in and do whatever they need to do. And then oftentimes it's just like, it's no different. It doesn't benefit me any more than a regular workday would. So it's just like, why, why am I doing this on a Sunday when I could just take care of it Monday through Saturday and then at least rest on Sunday? So basically what I had to do as of recently is just really put my foot down because for the past month, every Sunday, someone came up with an excuse and that's when I had to like really get serious and be like, okay, no, Sundays are like... I'm off limits. If it's an absolute emergency, you're going to be paying such and such per hour, <laughs> which is a significant more, much more beefed up amount than the usual. So that'll separate whoever is really an emergency than versus the people that are just saying it. Just call it a Sunday tax. Yeah. I call it the Sunday inconvenience fee. Yeah. That's what I call it. <laughs> Do you have a mentor that, that you really, um, follow or that inspired you early on that 
somebody that you bonded with who kind of walked you through a lot of this? I honestly haven't had any mentors. I still don't have a mentor, honestly. I've tried to have some mentors, but I definitely had people that inspired me, but mentoring, not so much. So, for example, I was inspired by Dave Pensado, Jason Joshua, Craig Bauer, and it's just based off the fact that I found them through songs, mixes that I handpicked, liked tastefully, but it was also the fact that um, um, one of my clients, B. Howard, the same person I was talking about that kind of developed um, pitch correcting recording in real time system with me, um, he interchangeably works between me, Craig Bauer, and Chris Godbay, who's known to have been doing like Justin Timberlake and Beyonce and Jay-Z and stuff like that. Between me, Chris, and um, Craig, I'm, we're all dealing mutually with almost the same clients. So it's just like um, they've inspired me based off like just mutual um, work relationships between um, me working, sending sessions there and me getting sessions from them and just seeing how they work and things like that and hearing the results and all that stuff. So I've, be I've become a little bit of um, uh, inspired by that. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I can say the only person that has came closest to almost mentoring me um, just because we've kind of had a little bit of a dialogue going on is um, Craig Bauer. But honestly... He's all the way in LA and I'm all the way in New York. So I, and I've never met him personally yet. Honestly, it's just been like a bunch of um, inspiration from these people. One thing that I have learned is, and this is a recent thing, is that mentorship doesn't always have to take place at the beginning or early mm -hmm. part of one's career. I've, I've, I've actually run into, run into some people who have been at it for a long time who talk about a current mentor. And I've just thought, now? That's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think, honestly, as of right now, I couldn't say I've been mentored, but I do think there's a strong chance my mentor is coming. I don't know who it's going to be yet, but um, I've been talking to some really good and um, talented um, engineers and people in the, um, in the industry. And I think that I'll eventually come across somebody that I can really like, you know, basically touch base with that we can like, I guess, you know, just work hand in hand with and just really, I don't know. I don't know what mentors really like do, but like they, I feel like they kind of guide and reassure someone about how to do things or what's being done and how to do it and things like that. And yeah. I feel like that's coming along eventually. I don't know who it's going to be, but um, I'm thankful to have, you know, met and talked to whoever I've been talking to so far. As of right now, I'm just here in this place by myself, <laughs> <laughs> um, running this business on my own. So I don't know. I wanted to ask you about, uh, I always ask my guests about gear and I always, and not, and not to talk about gear, but um, some people really go overboard and put themselves in great debt with gear. Um, yeah. And I wonder what your feelings are about how do you, how do you grow your business and purchase the gear that you do? Uh, do you, do you go into debt for gear? <laughs> um, all right. So it's the funny thing is, ironically, Craig Bauer, he's supposed to be setting a good example for me. But the one thing that I think is funny that he tells me is he'll say, come on, America was built on debt. Just get it just get it use your credit card <laughs> use your credit card and just and i'm like but i just and i'll be like but i'm still paying sweetwater right now for something i just purchased he's like use another credit card do something i'm selling this like right now and he's just like but you know it, he's a cool person that and i really um i'm thankful to like even be um communicating with him and everything so but I just like no I can't I'm not gonna do that because there's a limit and I don't I, feel, I don't feel like 
I feel like the worst thing someone can do is when they're just starting a business, digging a hole that deep, it's just like, it sets yourself back when it's supposed to be a strong start. Not only, not only like just with the clients you're working with creatively, but financially, I don't feel like setting myself into like a financial hole. And because I feel like if I just take it easy in the beginning, Yes, there was a lot of things I had my eyes on that I wanted to get. But um, now that, um, like I said, over the years when my ears got more mature and I gained more knowledge of audio and equipment in general, I knew exactly what I needed and I knew I knew exactly what I didn't need per se, but I wanted. And I was able to really get things done more efficiently and buy exactly what I need. So I feel like now with that kind of knowledge, I get exactly what benefits me and I'm able to kind of kind of ride the lines of like, yeah, if I want to get a little, you know, deep into like pricey kind of gear, I kind of can, but for the right reasons, but at the same time not go all out because I know what's really needed and what, you know, mm-hmm. what what's a want versus what's a need. And um, I can kind of prevent myself from going into a really deep debt that way. So do you and cons- I'm just happy for the knowledge of that. Do you consider yourself a fiscally responsible person then? Yeah, I can say. But if you say from a scale from one to 10, uh, I would say maybe an eight. That's um, pretty good, man. Yeah, I'd say probably an eight, maybe a seven. <laughs> maybe a seven. Because honestly, um, there are times when I feel like I'm the kind of person that I've, I have i didn't realize this until recently. I'm the kind of person that um, if someone says your budget is, um, if someone says your budget is $2,000, I'm not the kind of person to work underneath the budget. I'm the kind of person that I'd be like, I like to use up at least the full budget, but have a plan to at least pay that off. And then I feel like, all right, so if I had a plan to pay off the $2,000 immediately, like let's say that's something I can handle um, budget-wise, I, f- I would feel like, oh, well, it doesn't hurt to just go another $200 over that. So maybe 22 is not that bad. And then I feel like, well, if I bought something that's 2200 I could just add the other thing and that's just another $200 more. And then I'll find myself going $2,400 in, but I wouldn't go so far. I would only go that far. And I, you know, so, but then at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, that little extra step that I went further than expected, I can always cover that with, let's say a little, I made a little extra by doing an overnight session. You know, I can, mm. you know, compensate. So I kind of, in that respect, um, I would say I'm kind of responsible, but I just try to make sure I have something. I try to balance it out somehow, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course things happen so you don't always things don't always go as planned and sometimes it does take longer than expected to pay something off but at the end of the day um i haven't really dug myself into a hole too deep to um not recoup fast enough yeah so right now i'm just riding the waves i'm doing everything one day at a time and i'm just you know watching income go the way it goes and I'm waiting to see what taxes are going to be like the following year because I had just turned my business into an LLC earlier this year. So I'm waiting for early next year to see what happens and things like that. So, Well, cool, man. We're, I'm, we're out of time. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And I love hearing just about guys like yourself who are in the trenches working with six days a week. I what I try to do is I, I sleep when I can, but um it really helps to have to maintain a healthy sleep schedule. Yeah, um, don't burn out. Yeah, because and then it also comes back to haunt you. I've t- I've spoken to other engineers that they've abused their bodies when they were younger and then it comes back to haunt them when they were older. Well, pleasure speaking with you and uh, I hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah, of course. So uh, eventually the time will come. Everything happens at the right time. Absolutely. And it's a small yeah. audio world that we run in. Yes, indeed. All right, Michael, will you take care, my friend? And uh, I'll look for your audio and your pictures. All right, cool. Take care. 
Michael Ashby here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, hardworking guy. We'll keep an eye on him over the next several years, and uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing about him more often than not. So that's it. We are out of time, so let's thank everybody. I want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. Uh, be sure to tune in next week, of course, for episode 106. Yeah, you always got to check out the next one, right? Well, that's it. You all have a happy holiday, and uh, as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.